uh, it is uh, just always a joy uh, to have the opportunity to to come together uh, to sing with the kids uh, and to listen to them uh, line up in the back, uh, and uh, but also just to get to uh, to open up God's word uh, with you and. We've been working through our, our study on the household of God, what the, the church of God is called to be and do. Uh, and as we, we kind of wind down that series uh, this weekend and next week, uh, I wanted to, uh, to address the topic today of the, the expectation of the church, of what is the church called to expect of those who are following Jesus? What is our life going to be like? And uh, in the, the decade of the 170s A.D., there was, there was no serious persecution of Christians throughout the Roman Empire. For, for the most part, uh, Christians were able to, to live in peace during that time. But there were... There were many small cities or local regions where persecutions of Christians rose up. And that was usually just based upon the, the attitudes of uh, the governor or, or the other city officials. And there was one particularly bad persecution of Christians in the city that we now know uh, as Lyon, France. And the church there in Lyon had been formed in the early 100s. And from that point forward, the city officials had sought uh, to harass and persecute the Christians in that city, trying to stamp out the church. And one early church historian named Eusebius recorded the the persecutions experienced by those believers in Lyon. And this is what he writes. He says, first of all, they endured nobly the injuries heaped upon them by the populace. Clamors and blows and, and dragging in robberies and stoning and imprisonments and all the things which an infuriated mob delights in inflicting on enemies and adversaries. And when Eusebius mentioned robberies there, what was taking place is when, that, what, when the Christians went to gather together to worship, their neighbors would go into their now vacant homes and would vandalize and rob them. And the pinnacle of persecution in Lyon came in the year 177 when uh, officials in the city gathered up all of the Christians. Just like a lot of criminals. And they put them in jail. And after a time, they, they brought them to the public coliseum. And, and one by one, they called each Christian forward and they interrogated them. And, and they demanded that they answer one single question. They said, are you... A Christian. And Eusebius records that they did this before a a jeering mob. And before these these power-wielding officials, the Christians confessed. And they didn't confess some big crime against the empire or the emperor. They didn't confess any crimes against their, their neighbors who are now slandering and accusing them and attacking them. The only thing that they confessed was the name of Christ, that they were his followers. And all of those interrogations and proceedings were contrary to the Roman laws of the time. All of that took place illegally. And after uh, the Christians were interrogated in this way, they were then thrown back into jail for a few more weeks 
where they continued to be harassed and, and persecuted. And this was intended to intimidate the, the Christians into recanting their faith. And a few of them did recant. They said, no, I'll, I will turn away from Jesus just to be done with this. But the majority of them maintained their confession and their conviction. And it was then, after they were in jail for several weeks, that the officials of Lyon began to make martyrs out of those Christians. And they brought them forward, one by one, again, into the arena. And for the entertainment of the mob, they killed them. Forty-eight in all. And Eusebius records that the mob of townspeople, that they they raged like wild beasts. At those Christians who had been their neighbors. And he tells a story of one particular martyr, a woman named Blandina. She came into the middle of the arena, and when she was uh, confronted in front of that, that crowd of raging beasts, she simply spoke and said, I am a Christian. Now, the Apostle Paul commands us all to be good athletes, to, to run the race of the Christian life with endurance and with perseverance. And in reference to this, Eusebius referred to Blandina as a noble athlete. Now, she ran well and finished well. Now, when we, when we may think of what it means to follow Christ, we probably don't think about that type of a situation, do we? We don't think about having to to stand before a hostile crowd and be asked that singular question with our life possibly hanging in the balance. That's not what we have experienced here in America. But that has also been the, the common experience of most Christians throughout church history. And so what I would like to to look at today, to ask, is what have we come to expect in our walk with Christ? What do we expect to get from following Jesus? Do we expect hatred and hostility, harassment and persecution, or do we have some other set of expectations of what it means to follow Christ in this life? Now, are we are we ready to live and die? As Jesus said, are we ready to to live and be martyred as the apostles were, as these Christians in Lyon were? Again, as we as we wind down this series on the church, I I felt I had to address this topic. What is it that we expect as a church, as individuals? Because this is something that we have to prepare for ahead of time. It's really hard to prepare for it when you're in that arena on your own and then trying to think what should i say what am i supposed to do in this situation and so my my thesis this morning is that we as individual christians and we as a corporate church body we have to adjust our expectations of the christian life we we must adjust our expectations of what it means to live as christians in 21st century america because i'm sure you all have noticed Our culture is changing radically and rapidly. And we have to leave behind the notion that we will not face any persecution or any harassment 
if we are following Christ. And so I think we, we need the Word of God to rightly calibrate our expectations of the Christian life. That we must come to expect persecution from the world. And this morning I want to kind of frame my thoughts about this expectation of persecution around three big ideas. Number one, that the reality of the world's hatred. Number two, the, the explanation of the world's hatred. And then thirdly, and maybe most importantly, our response to the world's hatred. So first, the, the reality of the world's hatred. If you, if you open up with me to, to John chapter 16, and Jesus' final night with his 12 disciples, those who had been following him for the last three years, he says that he would now be departing them. And, and leaving them. And that was probably pretty concerning to those 12, right? Uh, and they had a lot of questions for him during the Last Supper. And this is what Jesus left them with. A, a promise in John chapter 16, verse 33. And it's a, it's a promise that when we, when, we, when we cling to the promises of Christ, this is probably not the first one that we turn to. Right? But nevertheless, it is a promise of Christ. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. But here's the promise in the world you will have tribulation. And we have to come to grips with that reality. It's becoming easier and easier to see in the world around us. Elsewhere in Scripture, uh, Jesus talks about what he is sending us out into as he prepared to send out his, his 12 disciples to go and proclaim the gospel among the Israelites back in Matthew chapter 10. In verse 16, he says this, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And so that is what we are called to do. And as sheep among wolves, we must live wisely. And also we must come to expect it. If we have been living among wolves and we are sheep, what is eventually going to happen? Well, the wolves are going to, to turn and attack. And right now what we are seeing is that the wolves are beginning to unmask themselves. The world's hatred is becoming evident. Our society is, is seeking to overthrow and remove anything pertaining to God. But that's really nothing new. Back in the 1790s, America was getting uh, its constitution together. Uh, George Washington was our very first president. But there was something else dramatic, another revolution that had just begun in Europe. The French Revolution. And the, the radical revolutionaries in France sought to, to erase Christianity from their society. On October 10th, 1793, revolutionaries marched into Notre Dame and they took down the statue of the Virgin Mary and they, they replaced it with the statue to the goddess of reason. And so the, the French society that had been framed and forged and, and founded entirely upon the Christian worldview 
They, they tried to, to purge everything pertaining to Christ from their civilization. And the French Revolution pursued this radical vision of a, of a secular worldview, not governed by any type of religion, but just purely of reason. They called it the cult of reason. And predictably, the cult of reason failed. It failed miserably because uh, when you try and dethrone God and, and put something else in his place, th- there's nothing that's going to compare. And the period of time when the, 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 the French had abandoned God and tried to erase him completely is known as the reign of terror. That's where the, the guillotine became popular. They tried to overthrow everything, but they, they quickly realized after about a year that this, this cult uh, of reason wasn't going to work out, that they needed uh, some additional foundation. They needed something to build upon. So they started the cult of the supreme being. <laughs> so in no way was uh, a return to the Trinitarian God of the Bible, but it was merely a uh, creating a new God in their own image. They created a new cosmic deity that they hoped would, would, would serve their purposes while also allowing them to continue in their revolution. And ultimately what's, what's really interesting is that when Napoleon came to power in 1801, guess what was one of the first things that he did? And he wasn't a big fan of the Catholic Church, but the first thing that he did was reinstate it. Because we have to return to some semblance of following God. What's remarkable, just as a, a student of history, is that the same things are beginning to happen in our culture now. And anyone who would profess Christ and, and run contrary to uh, this revolution, we are being attacked, harassed, persecuted. And I know, I know many of you may be feeling this already in your places of work. Maybe feeling it in uh, your neighborhoods. Maybe you even feel it in your extended family. Just uh, these ideas and things that are creeping in, these ideas that are so hostile to God. But this is what we are beginning to see is, is the reality of the world's hatred coming to light. And it's going to be challenging for us because as Christians, I think we have all been challenged uh, to count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. And a part of that cost is that we, in following Christ and saying yes to Jesus, I'm going to be saying no to sin. That if I'm going to follow Jesus, if I'm going to be a faithful disciple, then I have to be willing to give up my sin. But now what's becoming more and more clear is we also have to count the cost in another way. Not only do we have to count the cost of giving up our sin, but we also have to count the cost of embracing suffering. Are are we willing to embrace the suffering that accompanies following Jesus just as much as we are willing to, to give up our sin? And as we, as we contemplate that, as we, as we count the cost, as we, come to grips with the reality of the world's hatred, some of you may be asking, well, why does the world hate us? Why is the world so hostile to Christ, to Christianity, to the church? Well, that's the second idea that I would like to, to look at. 
first, the, the hostility or the reality of the world's hatred. Secondly, the, the explanation of the world's hatred. Right? Uh, right now, the, the, the topic of systemic bias is, a, is, is very popular in our culture. But, but the original systemic bias is the world's system being hostile to Christians and Christianity. And the world has identified a ton of systemic bias, but they, they've identified the wrong ones. Why does the world hate us as Christians? I'll give you four reasons. We'll kind of bounce around in our Bibles here. Uh, turn first uh, to 1 John chapter 5. And look with me at verse 19. First reason that the, that the world hates us as Christians is the whole world is under the power of Satan. As we just read First John last month, I pray that this would be familiar to you. First John chapter 5, verse 19, the Apostle John writes, We know that we are from God. And the other thing that we know is that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Satan is the architect. He's the designer of this world system that is hostile to us. It is under his power and influence. But it's not only that he has influence over the the whole world system, but he also has power and influence over every single unbeliever. If you you turn from there over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. first reason that the world hates Christians is that the whole world is under the power of Satan. Secondly, that the people in the world have been blinded by Satan. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case... The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, every unbeliever is blinded by Satan from seeing the truth. They're blinded from seeing the fact of their blindness. Uh, they, They don't even realize what is taking place. And that's where what's remarkable is that over and over again in the Gospels, what is Jesus constantly doing? He is constantly healing those who are blind. And yes, that is intended to be a uh, a demonstration of his power, revealing that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that is a miracle performed upon those individuals. But it is also a picture of what Christ does in our salvation. He gives sight to the blind. And those who realize that they're blind, that their eyes have been darkened by sin, he gives sight to them. And those who, who say, oh, no, we see clearly, they remain in their blind state. That's the whole point of John chapter 9, which we'll, we'll, we'll get to uh, in several weeks when we return to studying John's gospel. But those who are blind, not only do they not see, but they have grown accustomed to the darkness. They have an affinity, an affection for the things of the darkness. This is what, what John said in John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. And this is the judgment, 
the light has come into the world, speaking of Christ, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Did you catch that? There, there's some, some logical reasoning there. The world loves the darkness, and because they love the darkness, how do they feel towards the light? There's a, a hatred. There's an animosity there. And so the world loves darkness and hates the light. I'm going to, to see that their blindness, they're, they're going to want to stay in that position. But then thirdly, a third reason why the, the world hates and is hostile to, to Christians is that the world first hated Jesus. So, so it's no wonder that they will also hate us. If you look over to, and uh, well, I'll, I'll quote it. We can. I know we're bouncing around a lot. You can turn to or keep, stay there at Second Corinthians. We'll we'll get there. But for this third point, the world hated Jesus first. And in, in John seven seven, as Jesus is speaking to his brothers, he says this: "The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil." So why is it that the world hates Christ? Because what does he do? He, he is the light that shines and reveals who they are and what they are doing. And they don't like that. Matthew ten twenty four twenty five again, right after Jesus is, is describing to his disciples what he's sending them out into, right? I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. He also says this, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? And if they murdered our Lord and Savior, what should we expect? If they were hostile enough to to reject the Lord of glory... The one who was sinless, who was multiple times during his uh, false trials declared, there's nothing that he has committed. There is no sin that he is worthy to be uh, killed for. And yet they still killed him. What should we expect from that hatred and hostility that they felt for Christ? That's the third reason. But then... The fourth reason, and it's also there in Second Corinthians, it's in chapter 2, would say this, that, that we are in aroma of death. Yeah, I said you smell like something. Uh, but, but, but look with me, Second Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. This is what the Apostle Paul says. We can, we can look, begin in, in verse 14. Paul says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. God uses His people to spread the smell of Him, the idea of that uh, we are His sacrifices. But look, look at verses 15 and 16. This is how the world will smell us. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and 
among those who are perishing. To the one, a fragrance from death to death. And to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? The idea is that as we are uh, living holy lives, as we are proclaiming the gospel, uh, as we are reaching out to others and, and living for Christ, there are going to be some who, who see that, and it's going to be to them a fragrance of life. They're going to, to love that and say, hey, give me, give me more of that. Tell me about this Jesus that you are following. But there's going to be others that we're not going to be a fragrance of life to. We're going to be a fragrance of death. That everything about us is going to be an indictment against them. And they're not going to like that. That's something to think and and meditate upon. And rather than, than the truth of our gospel breaking their heart and bringing them to repentance, it will only spark their anger and further harden their heart against the God that they are already in rebellion against. And as we look at this, is trying to understand why does the world hate? The, the, the underlying theme in all of this is that you could say the world hates Christians because Satan hates God. Now let me unfold that. I've, I've said mo- many times uh, that the, the overarching theme, the big story of the Bible is redemption in Christ for the glory of God. That, that the big story is about how God is going to get glory for himself by saving a people through his son. But over the, the big picture story, there's also a whole lot of smaller subplots. And one of the smaller subplots in the Bible is how Satan is constantly trying to undermine what God is doing. How Satan is constantly attacking God's plan and God's people. And why is he doing that? Well, because Satan himself rebelled against God. And then what did he immediately lead Adam and Eve to do? Yeah. And then when God promised that the seed of the woman, one of the descendants of Eve, was going to defeat Satan in the future, Satan says, oh, I can't have this. And so what happens the very next chapter? What happens to those two boys that Eve gives birth to. Satan tempts one, Cain, to kill the other, Abel. You see the, the beginning of God, God's plan being attacked by Satan. It was Satan who tempted Cain to kill his brother. It was Satan who slandered Job and who slanders every other believer before God. Satan is known as the accuser of the brethren. It was Satan who sought to extinguish the line of David. It was Satan who sought to kill Christ as a child and who continues to shoot fiery arrows against everyone who would follow Christ. And so we see the the reality of the world's hostility and, and as we understand why this is, what are we supposed to do with that? And how do we respond to it? This is where I'd like to to spend the rest of our time. How do we respond to this world, this, this system that is against us, that is coming after us all the time? What is God calling us to do? What is our response to the world's hatred? And I have uh, nine responses here. And I'll circle back around and I'll, I'll repeat them at the end. But, but first, I want to begin with this because I know I'm, I'm painting a grim picture here. I can see it on your faces. But, but first and foremost, I'll say this. 
we are to have no fear. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. No matter how bad this world gets, this is the command of Christ. Because again, I've referred to this chapter multiple times. This is the chapter when Jesus sends out his disciples into the world. He says, hey, I'm sending you out as a sheep to wolves. If I was there, I'd be like, uh, what, can we talk about that? Right? Uh, can, uh, what, is that wise? Is that smart? Like, I'm a sheep. I have no way of defending myself. Uh, and there's a lot of wolves. Are you sure about this, Jesus? He says, no, I'm sending you out. And this is what he says. Look with me, Matthew chapter 10, verse 26. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Think about that. Jesus says they're going to to hate you. They're going to malign you. But have no fear. Because the worst thing that they can do is kill us. And then we are immediately taken into the presence of our Lord. That's all that they can do. So number one, have no fear. Number two, Consider yourself blessed. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. Jesus says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus says, no, don't think of that as a curse. Think of that as a blessing. What's amazing is uh, that that the apostles in Acts chapter 5, they're warned multiple times, hey, stop proclaiming the gospel. Stop speaking of Jesus. And and then, so they're they're warned and told uh, by the Sanhedrin, the the same group of men who who killed Jesus, they say, hey, this needs to stop. And the Sanhedrin has them beaten with rods. Beaten. Beaten. And then this is what is recorded in Acts chapter 5, verses 40 through 42. When, the, when they had called in the apostles, they, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Say, so, hey, you got to stop this. And we're going to beat you and hope that this convinces you. And the apostles went out smiling, rejoicing, bruised and bloodied, I would imagine. Sore, broken bones, and yet rejoicing. And then they kept doing exactly what had gotten them beaten. Another passage we don't have time to dive into, but I would encourage you to mark it and meditate on it. Philippians Chapter 1, verse 29 says this, For it has been granted to you 
that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. The idea there is that it has been gifted to us. It's a grace gift, not only that we believe, but secondly, that we suffer. We're like, well, can I just have the first gift, Jesus? Can I, can I return the second one? Uh, but no, it is, a, it is a grace gift, and we are called to count ourselves blessed when we face that type of persecution. There's a, a story of an English martyr named John Bradford who was standing uh, before Queen Mary, and, and his, his fate lay in her hands. And he said this, If she releases, imprisons, or burns me, he says, I will thank her. Let God do with me as he wills. I will be thankful. And Queen Mary had the nickname Bloody Mary because of how many Protestants she killed during her brief reign. So we are first and foremost to have no fear. Secondly, we are to to consider it a blessing. Third, how do we respond to the hatred of the world? We are called to love in return. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's hard, right? But that's what we are commanded to do. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now now think about that. That's such a, a lofty command. That those who are attacking and maligning you and harassing you and persecuting you, you love them in response. And you pray for them. And you're like, God, how do I do that? Why should I do that? Well, just think about this. This whole world was in rebellion against God. And what was God's response to our rebellion? He loved. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that hates Him, that is in rebellion against Him. What did God do for that world who rebelled against Him? He loved. And he sacrificed his son so that all who would believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That is the the, the beauty and the truth of the gospel. And that should motivate us to love in return even when we are persecuted. Fourthly, we are to pray for our leaders. We, We pray for those who persecute us. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 say this. First of all, Then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And that's what we have been enjoying for for many years now. But things are are changing. So we have been blessed. We have been able to to lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. But and we must continue to pray for that. But also set our expectations that we are going to face persecutions. We pray for our leaders. We also speak the truth boldly. 
I quoted Acts chapter 5 earlier in that chapter, Peter and the apostles, when, when, said, when they were told, stop preaching, they said, we must obey God rather than men. I love 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. It says, Be watchful and stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. And listen to this quote from Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was a, uh, a preacher in, in London in the middle of the, the 19th century. He says this, These are the days when we need men of principle, men who can put their foot down and keep it down, who cannot be turned aside. They call this firmness bigotry it is however only another name for christian manliness if you dare to do right and face a frowning world you shall have god's commendation well done good and faithful servant we speak the truth boldly we pray for our leaders we love in return we consider it a blessing we have no fear but then also we'll say this we must disciple our children Okay, what, what is it that you are preparing your kids for, right? Uh, what, what is it that you are teaching them? How are you modeling a faith that, that is trusting in the Lord, that is not fearful, but also teaching and discipling them, helping them to count the cost of what it means to follow Christ? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We need to teach our, our kids the Bible forward and, and backwards. Teach them to, to read and think critically. Teach them, uh, warn them about uh, the, the tactics of the world, the tactics of, of Satan, the one who would seek to destroy them. And our goal is to disciple and instruct them, not merely to obey, but, but first and foremost as parents, our greatest goal is to teach them to love Jesus. Because as Jesus said, John fourteen twenty one, if you love me, then what will happen? You will keep my commandments. But we try and invert that. And we try and say, kids, keep the commandments, and then maybe they'll, we have a hope that they'll love Jesus. But that's not what it says. Jesus didn't say, if they keep my commandments, then they'll love me. It's like, no. He says, no, if you love me, you will do this. So our goal as parents is to, to teach them to love Christ, to be examples of that towards them. Also, here's something to think about. The world around us understands the importance of teaching children. And if you don't believe me, think about this. Why is there such a thing as drag queen story hour at many public libraries? Why does that exist? Why is that needed? Why is there, there currently a, a multiplication of, of children's books teaching and promoting an LGBTQ agenda? Why are those things happening? Because here's the reality. The world is happy to disciple our children. If we don't do it, they will. And, and so we have to, to teach and, and disciple them, also to, to prepare them to live in a world that is hostile to them. So seventh response to the world's hatred is share the gospel. Okay? Well, as we saw in, in 1 John chapter 2, we are, we are commanded to, to hate the things in this world. To, to hate the world. Well, we are commanded, do, said, do not love this world or the things in this world. But, but here's a little bit of a clarification there. We are called to, to hate the things in this world. We are called to, to hate the world system. 
But we are not called to hate the people in the world system. But we are not called to hate others. Uh, I love what John MacArthur said. We're not supposed to, to hate them. They are the mission field. They have been blinded, right? They, they need the truth of the gospel. We need to be praying that the Lord would remove the scales from their eyes, that they would see clearly and understand the world around them. They are captives. So we are called to share the gospel with them, not just shrink back in the middle of all of this hostility. Number eight, we are called to trust that God knows how to deliver the righteous from the evil of this world. We're, we, we, we have to trust God. Turn with me over to, to 2 Peter chapter 2. Very important passage here. And it's a passage that actually is a, a commentary on an event in the Old Testament. It's always helpful. How should I understand this Old Testament narrative? Well, 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. Peter says this, these are lessons to learn from God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Because if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So there's one lesson to draw out of Genesis 19. Another lesson. And... If he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Think about that. That's the other big takeaway from Sodom and Gomorrah. God will destroy the wicked, but what else is he able to do? He's able to rescue and preserve those who believe in him. God sent angels to literally grab Lot and his family and drag them out of there. He says, you're coming with us. Let's go. We have to be convinced that God is able to save and rescue his people. A w- wonderful picture of this is, comes from uh, the life of John Payton. Uh, he was a a missionary to the island of uh, Vanuatu. At that point in time in the 19th century, they were known as the New Hebrides Islands. Uh, And John Payton went there, and his wife and and child died the first year that he was there. With that, travel halfway around the world. You you go with your your new bride, uh, and then you lose her and your infant child. Uh, And he continued there. Uh, And as he continued to minister there uh, on the island of Vanuatu, Tana. After about four years, Peyton uh, was betrayed by one of the natives who had professed Christ. And he was now actually running for his life. He's running across the island uh, to a refuge with a, another missionary couple who were there uh, ministering. Uh, and the, the missionary uh, couple is known as the, the Mathesons. And, and Peyton was in their home uh, when another native ran up to them and said, You're being surrounded. And they are here to kill you. And uh, so there the, these three missionaries are, surrounded by cannibals in the small island in the South Pacific. And so they just fall, fall down and, and pray together. 
And as the natives set fire to the adjacent church building, and there's a reed fence that connects the church building with the missionary's home, they're, they're realizing that, that they are soon going to be engulfed in flames because the fire is just going to follow along that reed fence and it's going to catch the house on fire. And so Peyton convinces uh, convinces uh, the the husband, the other the other missionary, that Peyton should should run outside. Matheson should should lock the door behind him. And what Peyton will do is he will cut down this fence uh, before it, it the fire spreads all the way over to the house. And so so Peyton runs outside uh, and. He's immediately surrounded by the natives. And the natives begin to scream, Kill him! And then right at that moment, as the church is on fire and, and Peyton is surrounded, he hears the thunder. And he begins to feel this roaring wind and rain. And one of the tropical cyclones that, that hits the island came upon them so suddenly and the wind was so strong that it blew the flames in the opposite direction away from the house. And the fire was put out. And all of the, the natives who had just been screaming and saying, kill him. Suddenly they're saying, this is the reign of Jehovah. Truly their God is fighting for them. God knows how to care for his people. He can care for three missionaries on a small island. He can care for us. Again, I love that, that passage that we read earlier, that we are worth much more than sparrows. Amen? That we must trust that even in the midst of persecution, God is able to take care of us. And if we realize and know that God is able to, to take care of us, then we, we must also look to heaven's reward. Matthew chapter 5, verse 12. says, hey, consider yourselves blessed when you are persecuted. But he also says this. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now understanding, as we look at the, 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 the trials and the struggles that we face in this life, right? Uh, an angry boss, a hostile co-worker. All of those things. We need, we need to keep our eyes fixed upon Christ. We need to long to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, from God more than we hear it from our boss. That's, that's the calling that we have. And we must also be convinced that, that the church is going to, to continue. Now, the church is called to, to go on. Earlier I mentioned that persecution in, in Lyon, France. And you can imagine how, how brutal that was. But when, when that persecution in 177 took place, not all of the Christians in the city were rounded up. It was a young man who was a, an elder or a presbyter in that church. Uh, by the name of Irenaeus. And Irenaeus had actually left the city and gone to Rome to plead before uh, the emperor, Marcus Aurelius. He, he wanted to go and plead for mercy and tell the emperor what was happening uh, in Lyon. And so uh, Irenaeus went to Rome. We don't know if he actually was allowed uh, to have an audience with the emperor, but uh, 
he eventually returned to Lyon, and guess what he found out upon his return? That 48 people in the church had been martyred. Imagine coming home to that news, right? 48 people uh, in, uh, that he had been fellowshipping with had been killed for their faith. And Irenaeus said, okay. And he stepped in and he began to, to lead that church. You can imagine how all of that weighed upon him. But he led the church and he be, eventually became the, the, the bishop in that city, the leader in that church. And he became a very important theologian and Christian apologist. He wrote a, a book called Against Heresies that addressed the, the false ideas of Gnosticism that were in uh, in, uh, in impeding the, the church in the second century. And Irenaeus served faithfully and boldly for the rest of his life, and then he too became a martyr. And, and that, that needs to be more along the lines of our expectations. Of our, are we ready to live in that way? Is persecution our expectation? Or are we are we so comfortable that that comfort has become a god that comfort has become an idol and we must come to expect persecution and hostility in this world because the church will be persecuted Christ promised it and we must prepare ourselves for it but I love what Another early church father around the same time as Irenaeus said this, a man named Tertullian, he says, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That every time that the, the church is persecuted, it seems to be cleansed and it seems to grow. So on the one hand, there are some hard days ahead. And on the other hand, uh, there may be some great days ahead. See what the Lord will do. And I know I've kind of kind of run out of time and I'm, I'm going over, but I'll, I'll close the service with this. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 13. Paul, who's writing from his jail cell, knowing he is not going to be set free, knowing that this is probably his final letter. He said this to Timothy. He says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Amen. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And if we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. May we trust in that faithful God who will care for us even in the midst of persecution.